Um, Amanda and I have lived in London, London for 26 years. Yes, Felicity does live with us, but not 26 years. Right. Um, and all of that time we lived in Covent Garden. I know that's a long way from here, you know, sort of down in the centre. Lots going on. Uh, we've been members of various congregations in the International Church of Christ. Amanda started out in Chicago before moving to join me in Brussels. And then we came to London and we were part of a thing called the City Ministry. People have been here long enough, they'll remember the city ministry. Um, then we were in the east for a long time, then in the uh, northwest for a short time, then in the central ministry, before that became just students, and now we um, go to Thames Valley. So we've moved around a bit. But through all our time in London, we've been involved with the work of Hope Worldwide. Um, initially as volunteers and as stopover hosts for Hope. Um, anybody here did stopover when they were younger? Yes, yes, good, good. And, um, and then we were asked to be trustees trustees of Hope Worldwide, so trustees of the charity. And I made the mistake of turning up to the first meeting back in 1995 wearing a bow tie. And they said, you go wearing a bow tie, you can be chairman. <laughs> and I'm still doing it today, all these years later. Um, anyway, while all of this preamble, why not just run, launch straight into a sermon? Um, well, I put a title up on the screen. And from that and from what I've said, you may be thinking, well, I wonder what he's going to talk about. You may be guessing what I'm going to talk about. Maybe I'm going to give you advice on parenting and talk about the work with the poor, about hope worldwide. But in fact, I'm going to do neither of those things because uh, my daughter may tell you I'm not qualified to talk about parenting. And the other people are better qualified than me to talk about work with the poor. The reason is I'm giving background, background to myself. And when we meet somebody for the first time, we're always looking for clues about them to think how can we relate to them? How do they stand? How do they speak? Um, do they look us in the eye? How do they dress? All sorts of things, we're looking for clues. And then we ask questions. We, um, we ask questions and about, the, to, about what they do and where they've been and things like this. We're trying to get clues so we can relate to them. And all those things are part of us forming an opinion about them. In a sense, we're judging them. We're forming an opinion. We're making judgments about them. So by describing myself, I'm giving you some hints about my background. They're not profound or deep, particularly, um, any more than the first discussion with somebody you meet at a party or at work is likely to be deep, but it's a start. When I meet somebody for the first time, the conversation always starts with an exchange of facts. Facts depend on the context. If I meet somebody in a work environment, a business event, I'm going to ask them about things like, well, the work they do and... Uh, what they, who they work for and what they think about business issues. If I meet somebody for the first time at a party, I'm probably not going to ask about that. I'm going to ask about how they know the host. So what are you doing here? What's your connection with the host? We've probably all done that. They're all part of the process of placing somebody in context. And the perhaps also a way of deciding how much attention I'm going to pay to them. It's a form of judging. So I'm not going to do a sermon about parenting parents and the poor. I'm going to ask instead about think about how we make judgments about others, about other people. So please turn in your Bibles or iPhones or whatever to John 7. Now I've noticed nowadays when I turn on the watch a television program, a television series, the episode starts with a recap of the previous one, previously on, whatever it was. Um, and I think it's something you're always useful to do something similar when you're looking at a Bible. So I'm going to start with previously in the book of John. And I'm afraid that unlike Netflix, you can't press skip. <laughs> All right. So in chapter five of the book of John, Jesus has been to the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem and has healed someone who's been sick there for 38 years, which is great. He tells him to pick up his mat and walk. However, it's the Sabbath. 
And as a result, the Jews start persecuting him because he shouldn't be doing things like that on the Sabbath. Then in chapter 6, he goes to feed the 5,000. He walks on water and he tells his disciples that he's the bread of life. And then many disciples decide that following him is too difficult, too hard, and leave him. And then he goes in secret to the festival of the tabernacles in Jerusalem. And halfway through the festival, he starts to preach. And this brings us to John 7, starting in verse 21. Uh, and, yes, sorry, I'm going to press the button. All right. So, I did one work, and you are all amazed, Jesus answered. Consider this. Moses has given you circumcision, not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances, rather judge according to righteous judgment. Now Jesus here isn't talking about judging people about, in the way, about how they look. Sometimes we can think outward appearances is how somebody looks. Because after all, in verse 15, if you look at verse 15, it says, Then the Jews were amazed and said, How does he know the scriptures since he hasn't been trained? So the outward appearance he's referring to isn't just how he looks. It's also what he's saying. The people have been listening quite intently to Jesus, and yet still he accuses them of judging according to outward appearances. Now, I find that very challenging because I go through life making judgments based on this type of outward appearance all the time. I judge somebody when I meet them. I judge the person I walk past in the street, perhaps. I use outward appearance. I listen to the words they say. I judge the politician on outward appearance. Forming a righteous judgment seems to be much harder because it requires us to understand things more deeply and compare them to what is righteous, what's right in God's eyes. I want to uh, give an example of this type of judgment from the Old Testament. If you could turn to 2 Kings 5. And whilst you're doing that, I'll do the previously in 2 Kings bit. <laughs> um, so Naaman, um, this is passages talking about Naaman, um, is a commander in the army of the king of Aram. So he's not a Jew, although the Bible does say earlier on, through him the Lord has given victory to Aram. So he's clearly recognized in some way. And he has a skin disease, probably leprosy. And his wife's servant, who is a Jew, says, um, suggested he goes and asks the prophet in Samaria to cure him. So he packs some gifts, large quantities of gold and stuff, and sets off. And the king of Aram sends a letter with him for the king of Israel. And that brings us to this passage. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and asked, Am I God, killing and giving life, that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease? Think it over and you will see that he's only picking a fight with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel tore his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Then Elisha sent him a messenger who said, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. But Naaman got angry and left saying, I was telling myself, he will surely come out, stand and call on the name of Yahweh his God and will wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. Aren't Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I now wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. 
But his servants approached him and said to him, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he tells you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, according to the command of the man of God. Then his, king was his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. Now, there are a couple of judgments based on outward appearance taking place here. Anybody think of what they are? In this passage, some judgments based on outward appearance? Well, he judged that why did he have to go in this room? Yeah, he, he sort of judged dipping himself seven times was, was useless. He could have done something else. Any other judgments? The king made a judgment. Yeah. This chap's picking a fight with him. <coughs> yes, the, ki the king judged the motive. He's picking a fight. The, those, those are two of the judgments. Absolutely. Have you ever sent an email and got a response you were not expecting? Someone misinterprets what you said or maybe interprets correctly what you said, but not what you meant to say, and reacts according to that interpretation, not what you actually said. This is what's happened here with the, with the king of the letter. The letter is, please cure my general. Fine. But he's put lots of context on it and said, oh, he's just picking a fight. It happened to me last week. I sent an email after a meeting as a follow-up, you know, like you do, you send an email, okay, this is what we agreed was going to happen. And I got a really cross email back saying, not, not that I, it wasn't what I, what I said, but you're, you're trying to cut us out of future discussions. And I just have to spend ages trying to sort it all out. Um, so you can get that reaction because you judge on outward appearance. Outward appearance. Now, name and dipping judgment, dipping seven times wasn't the right way to cure his leprosy. Just, that's what he decided. That's outward appearance. I'm sure Penny has this a lot in her job, that where a patient who's been researching his symptoms on Dr. Google comes in and argues about whether prescribed treatment is the correct one. We don't necessarily, we, we say, well, I've got all this information, so you must be wrong. When somebody suggests something to us at home or at work or any, our initial reaction can sometimes be to dismiss it, to judge it on outward appearance. I know more than you. I'm sure I'm better qualified. Do we judge them thinking it can't be the right solution, the right answer, just because of who made the suggestion? The point is that we all judge things based on outward appearance, how things are done and how they appear to us. And we don't only do this for people we don't really know, so people we don't see that much. We also make judgments even about people's very close to us. We judge their actions. And we react to them according to the judgment we make about them. This hasn't been done because this person hates me, or I've, no, I, this, um, we're late because somebody doesn't care about being late. I'm not mentioning the fact I didn't turn up on time today, it's just, <laughs> we're thinking about the judgment we make about somebody based on what they do or what they say. Now in John 7, Jesus doesn't say that making judgment is wrong. He says we need to make righteous judgment. What he's saying is we need to take care about how we make them and what we base them on. Not outward appearance, but righteously. But let's turn to another passage that talks about judgment, which is Matthew 7. Oh, sorry, I didn't do this part two. It was King's, it was too long. Right, Matthew 7, there we are. So, again, previously in Matthew, um, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I understand from an email I saw yesterday that Malcolm is doing a long set of classes on the Sermon on the Mount. Is that right? Coming up. Coming up. 
And um, I remember talking, I was talking to somebody, I think it might have been Matthew, Malcolm actually, ages ago, because when, when we were in the central ministry, we said, let's do some discussions on the Sermon of the Mount. Um, and we said, it'll take us like three or four weeks, we'll do discussions every midweek on Sermon on the Mount. I think it took us about six months to go through the Sermon on the Mount, because it's so deep, there's so much you can get out of it. And I think somebody told me once that, that um, many years ago, there was a preacher um, who decided he was going to do preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and it took him three years to get through it all. Something like that? Yeah, I think it was you, Tom. Yeah, it was um, Martin Lloyd-Jones. It, it took him years to get through it. So anyway, I'm not going to do that, fortunately. Um, but this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount starts with the Beatitudes. Then uh, Jesus talks about how sin begins in the heart, um, how we need to give to those who ask us. And what about giving your coat and going the extra mile? Love our enemies. How to give, how to pray, how to fast, and that we shouldn't worry. And then he talks about judging. So Matthew 7, starting in verse 1, 1 to 6, it says, Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but no, don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, there's a log in your eye? Hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dog, dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them with their feet turn and tear you to pieces so what's the link between judging righteously in john 7 and not judging at all in matthew 7 any thoughts what's the link don't rush to judge yeah Okay. Okay. So don't rush to judgment, but think about who's saying it and what they're saying in the context about it. That's that's one possibility. Judge yourself. Yes, judge yourself first. Now, he who is out sin cast the first stone. That's the same sort of idea. Um, any other thoughts? Okay, well, I mean, that's, that covers it. I think, I think the link is that we need to judge against a righteous standard and be willing to judge ourselves against that same standard. Yeah? So to be able to have righteous judgment, we need to apply the standard of righteous judgment to ourselves. And when we judge the actions of somebody else, whether it's somebody in the street or a colleague or a family member, we need to have a sober judgment about what we do against the same actions. We must not be hypocrites. So if I criticise... If I criticise somebody else at work for being careless with what they do, not taking time, trouble to do something, and yet I don't take trouble to do things, I'm being a hypocrite. And that helps me, when I, thinking about it that way, helps me not to be harsh with people because they fail to do things correctly. Because I know that I do exactly the same thing, maybe in a slightly different context, I might not have done it the same way as them, but there are other times when I do that. I behave that way, I make those mistakes. We mustn't be hypocrites. So it means we need to take the time to think and to measure and to assess. Now, we here in the UK are in an election period. Now, I'm not going to get political, but th that election period, it tends to emphasise the worst side of this rushing to judgement for us. We make judgments based on headlines and Twitter feeds 
on the basis of short sound bites. And that's understood and encouraged by all those involved, whether politicians or the media, because it's much easier to get people to make a decision if we can summarize our position in a soundbite and make sure there's a clear distinction between our little pithy statement and that of our opponents, and particularly the one we said they said, which happens a lot. So that tends to polarize our position into choices that seem very black and white. The choice is left or right, remain or leave. Thinking about it, having that deep analysis of what somebody's actually said, what the consequences might be, is not something that the system encourages us to do. We judge based on outward appearances. We're not making necessarily a righteous judgment. So now I'd ask, I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of work. So could you um, get into small groups, like two or three people, and think about the following questions. I think they're going to come up. That's right. For about five minutes or so. So first of all, there's two bits to this. So first of all, think about a time in the think you were judged based on some form of outward appearance. It could be at work or at home or at school or on the street. Somebody you feel judged you by what you did or what you said. So what was the reason you felt judged? Why did you feel that way? And how did it make you feel that judgment? And then the other piece is, think about a judgment you made about somebody else this week, about the person or about their actions. What did they say or do that you judged? How did you interpret what they said or did to reach that judgment? And in hindsight, do you think it was a fair judgment? So those two pieces. Spend like four or five minutes doing that, and I'll, I'll tell you when time is up. So for, first of all, did, did, anybody, did anybody here think they hadn't made a judgment or been judged at all in the last couple of weeks? We've all done it, right? We've all been judged or made a judgment, several judgments, OK. Um, did, did it make you, talking about them, did it make you think differently about any of the judgments you made? Anybody want, anybody want to share anything they, they thought as having that discussion? No? Um, I think I've been judged for a mug this week. <laughs> judged for a mug? <laughs> Took my car in to get OIT on Friday. And then I needed some uh, registration bulbs changing. Uh, and it turned out I didn't because it was a fuse that was affecting the things. And um, anyway, they've changed the bulbs regardless, even though it wasn't the bulbs. I'm going to fit the lights back, they've broken both clips, and <laughs> both of my registration lights are hanging down out of the, out of the car. And they tried to fix them with a bit of gaffer tape. So, why the mechanic would think that I'm not going to notice that and they're not mentioning it to me? So he's just, Obviously, I've now got a judgment of him. Yes. It might be a good reason that he forgot to say something, and like, you know, go order them or whatever. I'm just busy. But my initial reaction is to, he thinks I'm a mug. <laughs> he thinks I'm an idiot. Probably, you know, it could have been an extra talent for all he And uh, now I've got to try and figure out and sort it out and have an uncomfortable conversation about, by the way, when you fix my car, you broke it and didn't tell me. Okay. So, but I've got to lots be of judgment. not to judge. And yeah. the person the benefit of the doubt, which is not easy. Yes. Yeah, it's not easy in that situation, or in many situations. Giving somebody else the benefit of the doubt takes a lot of... You have to take a deep breath yeah. and stand back. It's okay. I'm, I'm not going to assume that you did it to be nasty. It's like we, we often say in families, you know, we, you have to assume... Well, we say we, you assume the best of everyone. 
but it's very difficult to do. It's much easier to say than it is to do. We assume the best of everyone, but then we still react very, really, really quickly when things happen. All right. Well, I'm going to talk a bit more about this idea of judgment. I'm going to show you at the front of a book I bought recently. That's right, yes. This is a book I bought for Felicity. Um, intending to give it to Felicity. It says, why your parents are driving you up the wall and what to do about it. I thought that would be appealing as a book title. Um, I thought it would be appealing to any, any teenager or any kid, okay? Now, Felicity's view, which I can understand, is it, it'll have been written by an adult to get children to behave in a certain way, and I'm not going to be fooled. That was broadly what you said, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> and which sort of proves the point that we all judge based on outward appearances. Now, I'm not going to summarise the whole book, but it's worth looking at the chapter headings, particularly those of you who've got kids, and if you've got older kids. So there you are, I see. So you treat this place like a hotel. Get up or you'll miss the best part of the day. Barry, you're nodding there. <laughs> um, school days are the best days of your life. What have you got to be depressed about? Can you get off that phone for one minute and you'll understand when you're older? Now, any of those familiar? <laughs> any of those familiar? Tick to all those. <laughs> Tick to all those, okay. Um, we've all, th those of us, the children of teenage children, at least, have all thoughts said or thought something like this when having an interaction with the child. So those of you who've got younger children, it'll be coming. Now, the theme of the book, the, the point of the book is that every time a parent says one of these things, they're making a judgment based on appearances. Every time you say it, you're making a judgment based on appearances. And every time the teenager reacts to it, they're also making a similar sort of judgment. It's the fact that both sides make judgment on this basis that causes conflict. But the fact that I make a judgment about why my daughter hasn't got out of bed and she makes a judgment about why I'm doing it is what causes the conflict. Now, every chapter of the book has the same type of structure. The author explains what the problem is. For example, in the one chapter two, which is get up or you miss the best part of the day, it's the fact that parents are obsessed with how much sleep teens get, teenagers get. In fact, they think it's too much. He then goes, so he goes on to explain why teenagers are worried about it, what, sorry, why parents would be worried about it. But then he talks about, for the teen, what's going on, both physiologically and psychologically, which may explain the behavior that's the root of the problem. And then he provides some suggested solutions. Nearly all of them involve parents and children seeing it from each other's point of view. Teens need to understand why it's really important that they get enough, why parents think it's really important they get enough sleep, and parents understand why it's really difficult for teens to manage a sleep cycle that lets them get nine hours sleep and get up at school, for school in the morning. The end of the book has a page that's entitled One Last Thing, which is worth looking at. So I'm going to put it up, I think. Small writing, so I'll read it. It says, when you were a child, your parents were masters of the universe who knew everything and could do anything. But now you're a teenager, you realize that it's not what they are. It can be quite a revelation, and it means that your relationship is constantly being renegotiated. Remember, although pet your parents once seemed all-knowing and all-powerful, your parents aren't that. They're just people. People with flawed and quirky brains that often make things harder than they need to be. People who want to be liked to be successful. People who care about those who matter to them. People who deal with the constant stresses and hassle life throws at them every day. People who have flaws and problems and deal with them as best they can. People who probably went through ex the same exact things with their parents. People just like you. 
And that's a key point to remember when we make judgments about people and their actions. We have a tendency to forget that the other person, the mechanic, the, the person at school, the person in the school playground, the person we meet on the street, they're a person just like us. So let's come back a little to the title I had at the start. I said parents parenting in the poor. Now we've already talked about parenting a bit in that you know, it's necessary to understand the point of view of the child even if it's difficult to, to get to what it is. Um, and it's necessary that we understand the child's point of view and the child understands ours. If they're not necessarily choosing to be difficult, there's a reason for it. But I said parents and parenting and parents. And I'm not thinking of us as parents, but I'm thinking about our parents. For many of us here, our parents are getting a lot, still alive, but are getting older. My father's 91, for example. As our parents get older, they need more help from us. I think everybody who's got an elderly parent would agree with that. Um, perhaps they need to have help to manage their finances or, or organize their care. I hold a power of attorney for my father, and I have to do both. Um, and I find that very challenging because it's time-consuming, it's difficult, um, trying to think what's in his best in interests. Also difficult because he's, he's got a bit of memory loss, so his short-term memory is really bad. So I can say to him, tell him, ask him to do something two days ago, and then ask him, has he done it? He's completely forgotten what it was. Um, but it's also difficult for him because he needs to be in control. He wants to be in control and recognizes that he can't. And I may be tempted to form a judgment about my father's behavior, saying he's tearful. He doesn't understand how difficult it is for me and how much time it takes. And then that causes me to react in a particular way. But I need to think about it from his point of view. And he's probably thinking exactly the same things about me when I criticize him for the, well, not criticize him, when I remind him for the 25th time to do something he promised to do three weeks ago, um, judging that I don't understand how he feels and I'm just trying to do, get him to do something for my convenience. I need to remember that's going to be me one day. I'm going to be the elderly parent one day. And I need to give a good example to anybody who might be wanting to help an elderly parent in the future <laughs> about how to treat my parents. And I think we, we all have that struggle. We need to understand it from the other person's point of view. And then what about the poor? I live in the West End of London. Every time I walk out of my door, there are lots of people around who are begging for money. And I have a choice about how I react to them. My reaction could be one about they're a nuisance. They should go and sort themselves out. Um, but I don't know how they got into that situation. What stops them taking advantage of the help that's available to them, like the help that Hope Worldwide provides, helping 100, 250 people get housed every year? I don't really know. Support on my alternatives. I can help them. I can give them money because I don't know their situation and feel sorry for them. Or I can refuse to give them money because I think they ought to be able to sort themselves out. Both actions are judging on outward appearance. There are some people I see begging practically every single day, the same person. And I speak to the council outreach teams about them who are supposed to help them. And they say, well, they're begging for their money for a shelter, whatever. But actually, they're already housed. They're begging because it's lucrative. They can make lots of money that way. They need it to feed their addiction. And they, they don't want to take the help that's offered to help it. I know that in ODAT, one day at a time, our drug program for Hope Worldwide, it's the determination of an individual to overcome their addiction that's the biggest factor in determining whether they'll be successful. So 
I make judgments about the people I meet, the poor I meet on the street, but I don't know the background. It's difficult for me to understand what the right reaction for that person is. What's the righteous judgment about their situation? So whether we're parenting, whether we're dealing with our own parents or with the poor around us, having a righteous judgment rather than judging on appearances is really important. And it's true in whatever situation you're in, whether you're at work or in church or at school or in any situation, it's true that we need to think about that. And I think that another passage in Matthew talks about something that's really important when it comes to thinking about how we judge. And that's later in Matthew 7, the, what we call the golden rule. So I'm not going to do the previously in Matthew 7 because we've already done that. But he comes on after the passage about judging. He talks about this. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. There are other ways of expressing it, but this is a Homer version. Whatever you want others to do for you, also do the same for them. We do need to make judgments about other people. If we never form an opinion about someone or have a way of reacting to something that happens to us, then we'll never be able to function. We have to be able to make judgments. Otherwise, you'd have to be a recluse. You'd have to never meet anybody. However, when we make these judgments, we have to measure them up against righteous judgment or up against this rule. Am I judging this person or their action in the way I'd like to be judged? Am I criticizing for something I do myself and am defensive about? I, if I make a mistake, I want somebody to be forgiving. Am I forgiving when somebody makes a mistake against me that I suffer from? Like the, the car. Am I, do I get defensive because I think I'm going to be attacked when, in fact, I should be grateful for the feedback? How do I react to people? So making judgments on appearances is something we do have to do, but we have to think about them. We have to be righteous in the way we do them. We have to take the time. And we have to, want, we have to treat people the way that we want to be treated as well. We're all imperfect. And so there's a significant risk that our judgments about other people and things that happen to us are going to be imperfect as well. So before we react to someone, to what they do or what they say, I suggest you take a breath and ask yourself, would I be happy if somebody reacted to me in this way? I hope that's going to be a useful thought for the rest of this day and for the rest of the week. And thank you very much indeed for listening to me.